Well, you all can grab a seat. And as Zach mentioned, my name is Todd Berkey, and uh, I run the the ministry called Junction. My wife and I do that, and that's uh, geared towards single young adults and single grad students. And it's interesting because that's a ministry and a demographic that is often underserved. And I just want to encourage you, if you are here and that happens to be your demographic, a, a single grad student or a single young professional, and you're like, man, there's just nobody like me here who wants to follow Jesus. I want to just let you know there is a place, and it's called Junction, that we would love to have you come on out on a Thursday night. We meet in the college auditorium right across the way. If you happen to know a single grad student or young adult who would love to be involved, we have these business cards that uh, I have here in my pocket, but I have a whole bunch in the back as well that we would love for you to grab some. And I meet folks all the time. And as I I engage with them, I love to be able to hand them this and say, hey, all the information you need to know is right here, the website and everything else. There's just a ton of of men and women in this demographic that, that for whatever reason are having a hard time connecting with others who want to honor God. And God is doing cool stuff there. God is transforming lives in incredible ways. And so I just, shameless plug there, it's done. I I get kind of excited as I begin to think about the men and women who are there and what God is doing. If you know anybody, have them come along, it'd be great. Well, you've made it. It's December, right? Like, we have arrived, we're always rushing. It seems like my my children, they were like, I can't believe Thanksgiving is already over. But just like two days before, they were like, I can't wait for Thanksgiving to get here. I can't wait. And we're always in a hurry to keep going. Well, we, we made it, December. The year is almost over. I don't know about you, sometimes it's hard for me to pause. It's hard for me just to stop. And and I need to do that. And it's interesting, sometimes when I have those pause moments or the reflective moments, they happen in very expected ways. And other times, they happen in unexpected ways through through unexpected people. God has a way of doing that. Have Have you ever just received incredible support and encouragement through maybe an unexpected or an unlikely person in your life? I mean... The, the story that we're going to look at in Numbers today is exactly what's going to happen. It's kind of like this. If you were to step back with me many years ago when I was in seventh grade, and it was time to try out for the tennis team. And so about 30 of us, we gather together, we're coming out, and there's just a few spots to, to, uh, that are open to, to make. And so the coach looks around the room, fixes his gaze on me, and says, some of us aren't going to make the team. But it's okay because it takes a whole lot of courage to even try out for the team. And I'm sitting there like, there's a lot of people. Why do you keep looking at me? And it's because I was always been vertically challenged and always smaller, but tried out and I made the team. And then moved on to eighth grade. In eighth grade, we had a new coach. And that coach looked around the room, people trying out. And they said, oh, listen. I made the team last year. Don't you know who I am? And so from seventh and eighth grade, you know, I, I competed and we played against the other rival middle schools all over the place in San Antonio. And they were our enemies. And we would have these epic battles. And then ninth grade happened. Ninth grade is when all the middle schools come together into one high school. And so now I'm sitting there for tennis tryouts. And there's 50 of us sitting there competing for a few positions. And the coach looks around and just on cue makes eye contact with me and says, Some of us are not going to make the team. And before he could get to the next part, like, hey, you know, it's great courage or whatever else. Uh, a guy next to me, his name was Ross. He had been one of my competitors at one of the middle schools. He was just an enemy of mine there. We'd have these epic battles on the court. He leans over and he whispers in my ear, that's not going to be you, Todd. You're going to crush everybody. Now, you shouldn't be talking to somebody that the coach is looking at because the coach takes that as very disrespectful. So he's like, some of us aren't going to make the team. What are you doing? Why are what are you saying to him? Like stops everything. So all eyes, they're all on Ross. 
What did you tell him? What was so important? So Ross stands up. He said, well, I was just telling Todd that he doesn't need to worry about this because he's going to crush all of you. And I sat there like, welcome to high school, Todd. Like, I didn't say that. And, and uh, it just was so unexpected. This guy who was my enemy comes around and he was my biggest cheerleader. And it's interesting. So how did the tryouts go? They, they went okay. And you're sitting there going, I don't see anybody there with no hair. Well, so right down here, this is me when I had the lovely mullet cut. Um, one, of, one of our young adults said, you should try to grow that back now. And I said, it would be a skullet, you know, bald on top and long and back. But it made the team. And, and it was just interesting. I never expected the one who had been my arch nemesis to turn around and be one of my biggest supporters. And Ross is actually at the other end in the hat in the same row. Isn't that just incredible? Unexpected places. And as we look into the, the, the book of Numbers today, we're going to be trying to cover chapters 22, 23, and 24. It's a long text. But in the middle of that text, there's this guy we're going to introduce you to. And he is an enemy and an arch nemesis of Israel and God. And yet... God is going to use him to declare an incredible message. So what I like to do is when we're teaching for two hours at Junction, um, I'm kidding, we're not going to be here for two hours. Uh, So I like to give you a game plan here. We're going to talk about the setting. We're going to try to set the stage, who these people are, what is going on. Then we're going to talk about Balaam's journey and we're going to talk about what he declares. And then really, what about today? Like, so what? This is all great. It happened a long time ago, but, but who really cares? We'll try to bring that forward to us today. So with no further ado, let's just dive in. When we're thinking about this narrative, there are different characters who are involved. And one of the characters that we just need to be aware of, obviously he's in the Bible, but is God himself. And sometimes throughout the Bible, God, he's always there and working. Sometimes he's silent. In this narrative, he's not silent. He's going to speak. But he's involved here and he's always been involved. When you go all the way back even to the nation of Israel's kind of creation, because he's the one who created them, right? In Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country to the land which I will show you and I will make you a great nation and, and I will bless you and make your name great. We know that this is the the Abrahamic covenant. He's promising them land, seed, a whole bunch of offspring, right? And a blessing. And so he makes this covenant and and Israel is is off and going from this point on. Well, another character, speaking of Israel, here is Israel. And we read about that in Numbers chapter 22, verse 1, where it says, Then the sons of Israel journeyed and camped in the plains of Moab beyond the Jordan opposite of Jericho. It's... Really interesting, because uh, I don't know what your favorite TV show is. I have no idea what that is, but our family, we like to watch The Office every now and then. And last night we watched this episode, and Michael, who's one of the main characters, like he just didn't show up for a long time. And it was very weird. Like We all sat there and we're watching and we're going, isn't Michael supposed to be? Like, what happened? He hasn't left the show, has he? Like, what, what is going on? We were so perplexed and confused by that, because a main character wasn't there for a portion of the sitcom. Well, as you were, if you were to be reading that, same thing is happening here. If you were to read from Genesis and plow all the way through and you come to Numbers chapter 22, something incredible happens. You're going to be like, wait, 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 wait. Israel's there, but they don't speak. We don't really hear about them at all. And this is a very unique and weird thing that would just stand out. It would strike you as very weird, just as weird as if you were to watch your favorite sitcom and not see your your main character show up on screen. 
as you were studying, you'd be like, wait, wait, why are we not hearing directly from Israel? Well, there's other characters who are involved. And before we move on to those other characters, Israel, though, is involved. And it's important for us to understand, I mean, this nation God has protected. He's brought them out of Egypt miraculously, right? He parted seas and he brings them out and he leads them in the wilderness. And the entire way, what are they doing? They're grumbling, they're complaining, they're whining, they're rebelling, they're trying their best to go back the other direction. I mean, they are just stubborn the entire time. They are not a very easygoing people. And so much so that if you were to even back up before we get into our main main uh, text, if you back up two chapters, you would see that the, they're hanging out at Meribah and they're sitting there and what are they doing? They're complaining. We don't have any water. I'm thirsty. God, come on. You've let us out here. And so they start their complaining and, and God provides. He tells Moses and, and Aaron, he says, Moses, go and speak to the rock and water will come out of the rock. And, and Moses, he's just been fed up after a while and he goes ahead and he has his, his rod and he, boom, and he strikes the rock a, a few different times. And as he does that, God's like, listen, Moses, that's not what I asked you to do. And so you, you can continue to lead the people, but you can't lead them into the promised land. And so water's there, there's provision. And then they move from there. They, they move on over to Mount Or. And, and here Aaron dies because he was told to. He's not going to be able to go in. And God begins to, to set the stage by putting a, a new high priest, in Aaron's son, in, in place. You also see that they're being attacked by Aaron. And as they're coming down, they're like, what do we do? And God provides victory for them. Celebration, right? That would make the most sense. But as you were to continue in 21, you would say, no, they just start complaining. And they're whining. They're, they're whining because the journey is long. They're whining because they tried to ask Edom if they could go through their territory. And Edom said no. And so they were more offended by Edom than they were in trusting in God to walk through his territory. And so they have an extra long walk all the way around. And as they get through the area of Moab, they have two incredible victories. Against the Amorites and then also against Bashan. And so they're, they're close. Like this is where Israel is going to be from this point forward until you get to the book of Joshua. They're going to hang out in this area opposite Jericho just waiting. And so they're close, but they're not yet in. And as they're just hanging around, this is the context where this, this event takes place. Well, there's more than just them. There, there's this guy named Balak. And, and he, he's the king of the Moabites, the guys who are just south and he's, he's nervous. He's, he's terrified. Well, we know he's a king. Let's just read here Numbers 22, verses 2 through 4. Now, Balak, the son of Zippor, saw that all that Israel had done to the Amorites. Side note, the Amorites had just defeated, not very long ago, the Moabites. So he's going, the people who were stronger than me have just been defeated by these people. Uh-oh. So Moab was in great fear because of the people, for they were numerous. And Moab was in dread of the sons of Israel. Balak, the son of Zippor, was the king of Moab at that time. And so you've got God, you've got Israel who's hanging out, you've got Moab who's sitting there going, we're terrified. Oh my goodness, we need to do something because they beat up the people that we couldn't beat up. And so we know they're stronger and greater than us. What are we going to do? There's a massive problem here. It's interesting though, had, had Balak had any knowledge of God's promises, he would live at ease. Because in Deuteronomy chapter 2 verse 9, you would see that God says, leave the land of Moab alone. There's no need. There's no need to go there. That's not your land other land is there. But either he didn't know about this or he refused to believe it. Either way, you've got a nervous king sitting there going, these are better people than what I am, stronger people than what I, what I am. What do I do? I can't beat them in war. 
And so he has this idea. He's going to hire this prophet named Balaam. Now, we read in Numbers 22, 5 through 6. So he, that is Balak, sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor at Pethor, which is near the river. That's the Euphrates. Please come curse this people for me since they are too mighty for me. For I know that, listen to his reputation. I know, Balaam, that whomever you bless is blessed. And, and whomever you curse is cursed. So we know that this guy, Balaam, we know that he's really well known. We know that he is, is a, a, a pagan prophet, if you were. And, and how do we know that, that he's well known? So this is where they're hanging out. And Moab realizes he has a problem. Now, if we were to zoom out of this map, if we were to zoom out, we would see that where Balaam is, he's roughly 400 miles north. And so his reputation, his fame has gone at least 400 miles where Balak is familiar with this guy. He's like, oh yeah, I, I know who that is. And it's really incredible. So, so Balaam must be this really strong, powerful, well-known, well-revered guy because he's known in all this area. But what is interesting too, as we're reading through the text, he's going to know about this incredible God who is known in an even larger area because he knows who God is. He knows who Yahweh is. He knows who the nation of Israel is. So just as famous as what Balaam is, you need to understand he's not on par with God. He doesn't quite realize it yet, but he will. And so we know that he's famous. Another way that we know he's famous, in 1967, I love it when we have these things, there was a discovery in in Jordan that found this plaster inscription. And as you read through, Balaam is mentioned in it. And it's dated back to about 800 BC. And in there it says that he is the seer of the gods. What's amazing to me about this is this record that's dated back to 800 is about four to 500 years after this event. So they're still talking about Balaam four to 500 years after he's lived. Truly incredible. He had to have been an individual of just great renown, of great power. Very important individual. Well, other things that we know about him because because where he lives, we know he's in Mesopotamia and he's probably a Baru prophet. And you're like, well, who cares about that? Well, what's interesting about these people is that they specialize in animals. And understanding and communicating with the spiritual world and being able to tell you what's going on in the spiritual world by what's happening with animals. If you're familiar with this story, you begin to say, like, this is really kind of comical. But what they would do is sometimes they would come and they would sacrifice animals. And they would sit and take their liver and they come around and they go, like, oh, this is a nice liver. But I see that God is going to do this next. So they would do that with sacrifices. But they would also look and observe living animals. If there was any change in their behavior, if there was anything just different that they were doing, they would then perceive that the gods were working in that place. And so here he is, this mighty well-known guy who is an expert at understanding the spiritual world through animals' behavior. Crazy. We also know because of where he is that he would have been a polytheistic uh, prophet, that he would have said, there's a whole bunch of gods, and I am here, I'm the seer of many gods, and yet within that culture, they have seven was just a great number for them, and they would have seven top-tier gods that he would have the ear of. Because he was Balaam. He was important. 
And so tuck a few of those things away, that number seven for seven gods, when we get to seven altars that are built, uh, tuck that away in, in the, and put it in your pocket, you will, that, that he's this prophet who really, really understands uh, the spiritual realm through the behavior of animals. When we get into our text here a little bit more. The other thing we need to know about him, though, is that he is not for God. You need to know that this guy is not pro-Yahweh and he is not pro-Israel. Not at all. Even though God is going to use him in an incredible way, he himself is for a prophet for himself in his name, not God's name. And we know that because he's going to have this incredible encounter with God. And yet, even after that, he is going to be at work to bring about a curse on the nation of Israel. We read in Numbers 31, 16 that Balaam, he basically was, was killed. But what he did in Numbers 25, and I'm sorry for all the numbers that are coming through because it's the book of Numbers and Numbers. But in Numbers 25, right after this, the nation of Israel, they get inundated with women who are Moabites and Midianites who come and they seduce the men to come with them to worship false gods. And there's a huge clearinghouse that happens. Now, the one who authored that, the one who said this is a way to curse the people, Balaam. We read that, Numbers 31, 16. Behold, these cause, these women caused the sons of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor. So that there was a plague among the congregation of the Lord. This guy is not a friend. He's not neutral. He is pro himself and pro his name and against anything else that might threaten that. So your stage is set. Now, we, we, we've got our, our, our stage. We've got, we know God is involved in this. You've got Israel that's hanging out, grumbling. How come we're not where we're supposed to be yet? Urgh, won't this just do? And then you have Balak going, oh my goodness, they're really big and scary. What do I do? I can't beat them. Balaam, help me. And Balaam, who is like, hello, I am Balaam. I will now curse all the people, whatever, pay me money. That's the stage. We're set and we're ready to go into our text. So let's talk about the journey. Balaam is sitting there and he's like, okay, I'm 400 miles away. So these elders, Balak has this great idea. He sends the elders up. They bring the feast for divination in their hand and they come to Balaam and he repeats to them Balak's words to him. Essentially, please come. You're so powerful. Come and curse these people. Well, Balaam being such a nice uh, host says, just stay with me overnight. Let me go check with God. And so he goes to check with God and God meets with him. And, and God says this, do not go with them and you shall not curse the people for they are blessed. It's really cool. Don't curse the people because they are blessed. Well, Balaam, he comes back and, guys, I really appreciate you making the journey. It was so good. And, man, thank you for your money. I did meet with God. I appreciate that. But he said, I can't go. So, bye bye And he sends them on their way. And so they travel all the way back down and said, king, he, he can't come. God said he can't come. And the king's like, well, that's not, that's not right. And, so we continue to read, then Balak again sent leaders, this time more numerous and more distinguished than the former, that came to Balaam and said, said to him, thus says Balak, the son of Zippor, let nothing, I beg you nothing, hinder you from coming to me, for I will indeed honor you richly, and I will do whatever you say to me. Please come then and curse this people. And this is great evidence that we know that Balaam isn't for God because he's already been clearly told, don't go because the people can't be cursed, they're blessed. 
but there's more numerous and more distinguished people there. And this is his love language. And so he goes back and he talks to God. And, and what does God do? He's, he says, okay, well, if the men have come to call you, you can go. But listen, only the word which I speak to you shall you do. That's it. And so can, can you imagine like, okay, God, can I go this time? Can I go this time? Can I go this time? It's, it's like my children. So I'm just like, hey, can we watch this? Like, no. Well, why can't we watch it? Listen, it's, it's just rated too high. There's too much violence. The language is horrible. Whatever it may be. You just, no, you're not able to watch it. Ah! Two minutes later, hey, can we watch this? Can we watch this? Can we watch this? They're just coming again like, no, no, no. Same thing is happening here. And so, but God says, okay, you can go, but only speak the word. That I give you. But then we run into something really confusing. So he's, he's going down and on any journey with God, God is in the business of just conforming people. He just is. And we see it even back then. But this is weird. God was angry because he was going. But God just said he could go. Why is God mad? That's a tough question. And there are, some places in scripture where it's just dead on, it says God was mad because of A, B, C, and D. This is not one of those. And so we have to kind of look a little bit uh, broader sense. Like, why was God mad? Because he said he could go. Before we even dive into that, it's not uncommon for God to say, I want you to go from here to there. And then as that person is going along the way that God meets him and wants to bring about change. For, for example, in Genesis, right? Yeah, I think it's in, in 32, is that where Jacob is, is hanging out and God says, hey, head back to your homeland. It's a clear call. Leave Laban and, and gather your stuff and go. And so he's like, okay, let's go. And he's on his way back. And who does he meet and wrestle with? God. God has to go ahead and, and have a little way. Who are you? I'm a supplanter. I'm a cheat. I'm a sneak. I need to give you a different identity. You're not quite ready to go. Or, or if you were to look in Exodus chapter four, you see Moses, who's already said, no, God can't go. No, God, I can't go. No, I can't speak. I can't do this. And then finally he says, fine, I'll go. And he, as he's going, God meets him and looks to put him to death. He's like, wait, Moses is doing what he's supposed to be doing. What, what happens? And then Moses' wife circumcises their kids and throws their foreskins down at Moses' feet and that appeases God's anger. So it's not uncommon for God as he's sending people to continue to conform them. For Moses, for example, you're going to lead my people my way, but your family is not even led in my way. So this behavior that God is doing here, it's not necessarily uncommon. You can be right in the middle of God's will and he can continue to point and nudge you and work on you and conform you more and more to your image. So that's not out of character, but why is he angry? We're not told. We do know, though, that in Jude, we know that Balaam, both in Second Peter, Revelation, and Jude, where he's talked about in the New Testament, he's never talked about favorably. He's always talked about somebody who just loved money. That was the most important thing, money and fame. And where is God? He's down here. And God is like, I think that perhaps you're going to stay this way and you are missing the gravity of the situation. Because what you're going to go down and what I have planned is huge and it's big and it's a big deal. And so long as you are in this where money is more important than what I'm saying, we've got a problem. We read in Jude 11 there, woe to them for they have traveled through Cain's path and because of greed have abandoned themselves to Balaam's heir. That he was a very greedy guy. And so he needs to have this wake up call to the gravity of the situation. Like he needs to understand that God is serious. 
It's much like this. In, in college, I, I played, I continued to play tennis, and I was playing a tournament in Jamaica. And the whole team was down there, and, and uh, we stayed in this hotel that was the Pineapple Palace, and it was not a palace by any means, shape, or form. But where we would play our tournament was about a mile and a half that way, I guess that way. Um, and we would have to walk through the markets to get to the, the resort to play at our allotted times. And every day that we would walk through the market, we'd always have the people there saying, hey, buy this, buy this, buy this, buy this. And so as I was walking, one of the first day, there was a guy with a big old seashell. And, and I was like, oh, you've got a seashell. How much for the seashell? And he's like, $10. And I'm like, $10? I can go buy one. I can go find one on the beach myself. Why would I pay you $10 for this that I can go find? And so we haggle back and forth. And we finally land on, okay, it'll be like $5. We'll, we'll land at five. I'm like, that's awesome. However, I need to go play. So can I get it tomorrow? He's like, that's fine. I'll be here tomorrow. So I go and I play. I come back. Well, the next day comes and as I'm walking out, I see the guy. He's there with his shell. And I also see he's got five or six guys around him. And I also know that we're late. And so as I'm trying to go, one of his friends steps out of my way. He's like, hey, did you say you're going to buy this guy's shell? I said, yeah, but I'm late. I have to go. He's like, no, no, no. And the guy's just kind of around me. My teammates, they were so loving and good. They just continued on. They all left me. So I'm here in the middle of this marketplace with five guys who are all looking at me. Did you promise to buy this shell from the guy? And I said, well, I did. And, and I'm nervous. And as they're looking, they're like, well, give him his money and he'll give you the shell. I'm like, well, I don't have the money with me. I did. I just didn't want to open up my, my wallet in front of all these people with no backup around. And so they're kind of laughing a little bit like, yeah, 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 you're lying. I'm like, well, I, you know, I, I, maybe. I'm like, do you know what we do to people in Jamaica who lie? And at that, they all stopped laughing. They all went just stern face, all looking right at me. One of the guys, I remember just like it was yesterday, he has this, this shirt with cut off sleeves and on it, there's a gun that says, I do not dial 911. Okay. And so they're sitting there, they're all like, do you know what we do to liars in Jamaica? And I'm looking like, oh my goodness, it got real serious real quick. We shoot you in the kneecaps. Nobody laughed. All of my buddies were gone. And I'm standing there like, what do I do? Like, this just got serious. It was just a a seashell, right? And now it's my kneecaps? And being the clever person that I am... uh, I wasn't at all. I was like, well, that's just a really good marketing strategy. And then nobody laughed. They just kept looking at me. He says, you buy the shell tomorrow. Okay. And I ran away. And, and the next day, sure enough, I bought the shell. But here was the deal. I didn't understand the, the situation from their perspective. I didn't understand how important the $5 was to them. I didn't understand things. I didn't understand the gravity of that from their perspective. And, and Balaam doesn't understand it either. He's like, woohoo, I get to go for, for more money. And God is sitting there saying, there is more going on here than what you have a clue about. And so I need to give you a wake-up call. And it's a very weighty wake-up call. But it's also kind of humorous. Because as, as he's going, right, he, he's riding the donkey. And he's like, hi, here we go. And God is mad. And so the angel of the Lord comes and, and he stands in front of him looking to kill him. The donkey's riding and sees the angel of the Lord. And the donkey says, nope, and goes this direction. Balaam is like, ah, this is not good. He begins to beat the donkey. Stop it, stop it. And the donkey's like, uh-uh, I'm not going back there. And as the donkey continues, the angel of the Lord moves and puts himself in, in their path again. And the donkey's like, mm-mm, and gets way over against a wall and crushes Balaam's foot. And he beats him again like, what is wrong with you? 
And then as the donkey continues to go, the angel gets in this narrow place where there's no going right or left. And the donkey's like, "Mm -mm," and just stops and sits down. All of this is unusual behavior, which we'll learn about. And this prophet, who is supposed to be so keen in the spiritual world, and he can, he can go ahead and ascertain what's going on by the movements of animals, is totally clueless. But the angel of the Lord is right there. I mean, he's nothing. God is, is showing him that he is absolutely nothing. And then God does the weirdest thing. I, I don't understand how or why, but he allows the donkey to talk. And the donkey's like, hey, why are you hitting me? And this is the craziest part. Balaam doesn't go like, whoa, a talking donkey. No, he's like, well, you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. He has this conversation without any surprise, which is weird. And you also would think perhaps at that moment, this master prophet, well-known, would figure out there's something different with this animal that I should be aware of, but he's still clueless. And then the angel, then the Lord allows him to see the angel of the Lord. And what is Balaam's response? He gets off the donkey and he goes. He goes all the way down. He realizes that he is nothing, that he is in the power of something that is far greater than him. That he really knows nothing at all. And it changes a lot for him. God gave him a wake-up call as he was going of the importance of speaking only his words. So as we're coming through now, he's coming to declare. So he shows up, right? He gets there, and, and Balak's like, what took you so long? And Balaam's like, I don't want to talk about it. Well, why don't you talk about it? My donkey talked to me, so I just don't want to talk about it. You might think I'm kind of weird. And so they sit there, and, and he's like, I, lo- I want to let you know, yes, I'm here, but I can, I can only tell to you the words that God gives me. And he's like, that's great, that's great. So come here, I want you to see the people that I want you to curse, okay? Here they are, and I've I've got my seven altars out just like you like, right? And I've got the sacrifices going, do you need the body parts to go with you? Whatever whatever it is you need. And it's amazing to me, they're sacrificing on a pagan place and trying to reach God in a pagan way. You know, it would seem like God would say, no, I'm repulsed by that. But God shows up and says, none of that's going to stop me from communicating the truth that I need to communicate. We don't have time to go into all that, that he's going to do here, but he's going to end up with three different times coming around and, and blessing Israel. And the first time, it's just it's truly amazing. Well, before we even get into that, my, my apologies. This blessing and cursing thing, it really is this, this question that is God going to be faithful to his promise in Genesis chapter 12? Because remember way back then, Abraham, I'm going, to make you a con- I'm going to make you a country. I'm going to give you a land, seed, and a blessing. And those who bless you, I will bless them. And those who curse you, I will curse them. But Abraham, you are blessed. Is God going to be faithful to this promise? You've got the perfect environment, a whiny, criny, crying people, stubborn people who don't deserve a blessing. You've got a pagan prophet in a pagan land Approaching, trying to approach pagan gods to bring a curse on the very undeserving people. But it has nothing to do with the people. This is everything to do with God's faithfulness. Is God going to be faithful to what he has said? Well, his response is this the first time. Balaam comes back. He said, oh, I talked to God and here's what he said. He said, how shall I curse whom God has not cursed? 
And how can I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? He goes even further at the end. He says, man, I see their future and I wish it were my future. Balak is like, wait, I hired you to curse the people and you've actually just blessed them? You want to be like them? Like, what are you doing? This is not what I expected. But God is saying, I am faithful to my promises regardless of these people's behavior. So he says, well, we'll move over here. Move, move to a different location. Come over here and, and look out. Look out over here. Here's the, now, now curse them from here. So he goes and they repeat the whole thing. And this is so beautiful, y'all. This is just incredible. He comes back, he says, behold, I've received a command to bless, not to curse. I've talked to God. He said, no, bless. And when he has blessed them, I can't revoke it. He, God, has not observed misfortune or he has not observed iniquity in Jacob you see that see there was iniquity they did all sorts of things wrong they were not the people that you sit there and say you are the model students and so therefore I'm going to lavish blessing upon blessing their behavior was horrible and because of God's promises he looks and he says no no this isn't about their behavior it's about my faithfulness And they are blessed. What about all their sin? What about their sin? I don't see it. Isn't that incredible? I don't even see, he continues, I don't even see any trouble in Israel. All I know is that the Lord, his God, is with him. And there is absolutely no omen against Jacob. Nor is there any divination against Israel. Balak is like, what is going on? Come, into a, come to a third place. Come and look, at, look and see again. Please hear, will you just curse them? Well, I can repeat things over and over and over and over again. And he comes back and he says, hey, God brought them out of Egypt. They have, as it were, the strength of a young bull. They will devour hostile people and will break their bones and will pierce them through with arrows. They crouch and lie down like a lion and as a lioness. Who can stir them? And why would you? They're stronger than you. Are you sure you want to keep going this way, Moab? And then he repeats here. Blessed is the one who blesses you, Jacob, and cursed is the one who curses you. This entire time, the question was, will God be faithful? The author removes Israel. They're there, but he doesn't allow them to speak. Because if they were to speak, they would say, we don't deserve it. But instead, God shows up and says, no, no, I called you blessed, and therefore you are blessed. This is just incredibly amazing and beautiful stuff. Because we're going to pull it forward. And as we get ready to pull it forward, we're also going to be celebrating communion today. And so I would ask that the, those who are preparing communion, if you guys would head towards the back. But when we think about, like, so what? what that's a great story for Israel. But you know what? God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. The God who sits there and says, they are blessed because I called them blessed. He's the same God who says, you are forgiven because I have made you forgiven through Jesus Christ. See, that's the gospel message, isn't it? It's not about what you do. I have conversations. My wife and I, we have conversations with people all the time. And when we're talking with them, every person we will talk with, if we ask them a question like, hey, do you think the world is broken? Do you think it functions how it's supposed to function? Everybody will sit there and, and be like, well, what do you mean? Like, well, do you think that, that like, 
when you look and you see massive world hunger or, or great disease, do you think that's how it's supposed to be? And the people are like, well, no, no. And they can begin to give us a list of, th- of ways that they see brokenness in the world, that it's not functioning as it's supposed to function. And we'll have a, a fun time talking about that for a while. Like, man, you're right. You're right. That's broken. That's broken. That's broken. That's broken. And as we begin some of that relational rapport with them, like, man, do you ever think that maybe we as people were broken? And they will all come around and say, you know what, you're right. There is something wrong in me. And what do you do to try to fix that brokenness? Well, I, some will say, that's why I'm getting my PhD. I I just figure if I have one more degree, then I'll be somebody. Then that that longing inside will be taken care of. Others will say, man, I just, if I have a a spouse, if I have a great family, then that, that brokenness inside will be taken care of. Others will sit there and say, man, if I just have the right look, if I have the right car, the right title, the right whatever, others will sit there and say, I know the brokenness is there. I know none of those things work. And so I just try to numb it. And so I run to the internet and I look at things I shouldn't be looking at. I run to alcohol or drugs just to escape things. I sit in front of Netflix and just go, next, next, next. Or I go and I just check out into a fictional world and video games where I can be somebody maybe who's not so broken, but I just try to avoid it. We all know that we're broken. And the gospel message is incredible because Jesus never asks us to say, clean up your act and then you can come to me. Never does he do that. Never. His son came and it's by grace... Through faith alone that a person is saved, that that brokenness can be, can be resolved in Christ. And it's because of what he has done and not what we have done. And so when you sit there and you look at numbers and he says, are these people cursed? Do they deserve to be cursed? Absolutely. Are they? No. Why? Because God is faithful. The same is true today. As a follower of Jesus, you've been made new. You've been forgiven. You're incredibly loved. You're victorious. You've been adopted into his family. You have a secure future. We could go on and on, and these things are true of you, not because of your performance, because of him, because of Christ and his faithfulness. Aaron, and my, my wife and I, again, we, we talk to people all the time, and we spend so much time trying to convince people of who they are. Favorite part of Thanksgiving was uh, yesterday, actually. Everybody else had left, and we thought we were saying goodbye to our final person, and, and they said, can I talk to you for a moment? And so our mid-70s aunt uh, wanted to talk with us, and we said, ah, that's fine. And we sat down and began to hear just, just some real heartbreak. And as we began to ask some questions and began to sit there and remind her of who she is in Christ, she just stopped. She's like, ah, tears are nice. Like, ah, but I don't act in a way that's always, in a, that, that it's like that. It doesn't matter. You are that. That's how God sees you. And that's amazing. It's incredible. See, in Romans eight thirty eight, we read about this. We, we read, if I can get the clicker to work here, there we go. Paul writes, he's convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor heavenly rulers, nor things that are present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation is able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's incredible. That's so incredible. It's not based upon your performance. It's what he has said you are. And so even if you have abused the gift that he has given you, he still views you as loved, as wanted, as victorious. He still extends that. And that is amazing. And that is worth celebrating. But the other thing that we can pull from this is is simply this, that, that God can use you. I mean, God used this unexpected pagan prophet who was against God 
and was all about money. And if he can use that to declare his glory, he can use you. And as we leaned into that conversation with our mid-70s aunt and began to paint a picture, she, again, she just welled up. She's like, I, what? That God could do that in me and then through me to change my grandchildren's future, to, to impact other relationships around. Like, what? He can use me? I thought I was all done. <laughs> no. No. And so as we, as we come into communion, this is a time that we celebrate, wow, God, this is what you have done for me. God, this is what you have given me. And what we're going to do is, as the men come on forward, as they come forward and as we pass the elements, I just want to challenge us here a little bit to, to spend some time reflecting on one of these things up here. Whether you just need to spend some time to reflect on the fact that he's faithful to his promise. The fact that you're forgiven, loved, freed, or adopted. Or, or maybe you need to spend some time and just go, man, God, uh, man, can you use me? I've seen where you've used me. We need to celebrate that. Or maybe we need to be asking him to, to enter into other areas where we'd love to see him use us as well. We're going to hold the elements, and I'll be back in just a moment, and we'll celebrate communion together. And communion is a time of celebration. It, it, it's a time to remember that God was faithful, and he is faithful. Remember back in the Abrahamic covenant, he, he says, in your seed, all the families will be blessed. He, he let them know hope is coming, hope is coming, and hope came in Jesus Christ. He was faithful to that promise. He will continue to be faithful to the promise he's made you and me as followers of him. And that's something to be excited about. That's something to be overwhelmed by. That's something to allow to, to just transform and impact our lives. Jesus wanted us to continue to remember God's faithfulness through communion and remember his last uh, meal with his disciples. He grabbed a hold of the bread and he said, man, this is, this is my body and it's given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood and, and do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you. Father, we look at, at stories and events within numbers, Lord, that there's so much going on in them. Sometimes we can get just confused by all facts and figures and people and places, Lord. But at the end of the day, you boldly declare that you are faithful in spite of our behavior, Lord. That we can't out you. That we can't have a place where we've messed up so bad that we're no longer loved by you, Lord. Where we're no longer useful to you, Lord. That's just not truth. And so, Father, I just pray that each person in this room would know that they are dearly loved, they are sought after, Lord, that they are forgiven, that they are free, they are redeemed. Father, they are, are, are secure in their position with you, Lord, and out of that, Lord, out of the overflow of that, Father, I pray you would transform their families. I pray that you transform their workplaces, their play places, Lord, their schools, Lord. I pray that you would use the men and women in this place to do incredible and great things. Father, we absolutely love you being faithful and being gracious. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.